morning, uh, but bear with me, we'll get through this. Uh, we're wrapping up the uh, book of 1 Timothy this morning. Uh, not completely wrapping up, we're going to have one more, one more week of it. Uh, so we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're looking at verses 15 and 16, and we're taking a look at Jesus here this morning. Paul gives a description of Jesus. Uh, and the, like we traditionally do, I'll, I'll read our passage, we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll get to looking at it. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 15, it says, Which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. That's who we're going to be talking about this morning. Before we get doing that, let me have a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for this day you've given to us. It's another day to worship, to glorify, and to honor you. Help us to do that. Help us to do it in a worthy manner. For you alone are worthy. We ask that you guide us through your word here this morning. Show us how we can be more like you. Show us how we can lift your name up among this world around us. And to show them your majesty and your glory in such a dark, dark world. We thank you for all the help. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this, you couldn't help but notice that as we start right off, it says, which. Uh, so that tells me we're continuing a thought from last time, right? We're continuing a thought from the previous verse. In fact, if we look at it, the English translators saw fit to uh, end verse 14 with a colon, which in that case was the right thing to do. So right up front, I need to apologize to you for jumping right in into the middle of a thought. Uh, but we had to break last time off somewhere, didn't we? Or else I would have run into worship service time. Now, see, if you guys would just give me a little bit more time, we wouldn't have these kind of problems, and I wouldn't have to break these lessons into awkward sections like this. But we're picking up here uh, right in the middle of a thought, so let's back up and read the rest of our chapter. Let's pick up. To the beginning of the chapter, which is uh, beginning of the sentence, which is verse 13, and we're going to read it again. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Je Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now that's the whole sentence. See, with all that being said, we've got to back up. We need to realize that the last thing that we were talking about last time we were together was the coming appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So 
with that in mind, we're continuing our thought with what we're going to look at here today. And that's important. Because neither God nor Jesus himself is specifically called out in verse 15 or 16 today. So we need to know with absolute certainty who it is we're talking about. Who are we talking about? Now I hope you realize though that there is only one person to whom this description fits. There's only one person in all the universe that this description fits. Actually, I kind of find it humorous. And I almost think Paul didn't mention God on purpose to make his invisible nature even more pronounced. By not mentioning him, he makes the invisibility of him even more pronounced. Since that's one of the major themes of these couple of verses that we're looking at today, I think so, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. But right up front, Paul speaks of the timing of the appearance of Christ. I don't know if you notice that. Which in his times he shall show. He's talking about the timing of the appearance of Christ. Now the Greek word used here for timing is kairos, which we've seen a couple of times already. We saw it in chapter 2 and verse 6. We saw it in chapter 4 and verse 1. Let's look at it. Uh, 2 and verse 6. He says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Kairos. Look at uh, verse four and, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in latter times shall, come, shall some depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Latter times. Kairos. A time. A window of time. It's used other places throughout the New Testament as well. But let's look at our immediate context. He's speaking of times of the end. He's speaking of times when people are going to be departing from the faith. When Paul's using the term kairos, he doesn't mean so much a day or an hour as such, but rather a more general time frame. That's what he's meaning when he says kairos. So we can conclude that the timing of the coming appearance of Christ is in God's hands. It's in God's hands. Now, Jesus mentioned that three times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. Uh, At the risk of stealing Brother Fisher's thunder, let's look at all of them. They're all in the same section. Uh, Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. And 25. But we're going to start off in 24. In verse 36, we're jumping right into the middle of a thought. I apologize for that, but we don't have time to read the whole chapter. Uh, He says, But of the day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Day and hour, that's that same word, kairos. Uh, Verse 50. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day that he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of. We're talking about kairos. Uh, Go over to chapter 25 and verse 13. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Kairos. We don't know the day. We don't know that we can't nail it down to a specific day. We can't nail it down to a specific hour. Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that they cannot know the precise timing of the final events. Now, there is a movement out there right now as we speak today uh, that claims Jesus is going to return in 2030. I don't know if you've heard of it, but there are people who are claiming Jesus is going to return in 2030. 
because we had seven fat years under Trump's economy that began in 2016, and that there's seven lean years that began in 2023, and Jesus is going to come back in 2030. There's a, there's a group of people who believe that. But no one can make that claim. When Jesus says that it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own power in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, that's what he means. And that phrase that he says that the Father hath put into his own power, in his own power, is the same phrase that we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, in his times. It's kairos idios. In his power. That time is in his power. Now, last time, we saw that Paul warned Timothy to live in a keen awareness and an anticipation of Christ's glorious appearing. We backed up and we reread that, right? uh, Verse 14. Keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy needs to be aware, watching for this appearing of Jesus Christ. See, While Timothy's supposed to be watching and anticipating Christ's appearing, he isn't supposed to be so focused on that appearing that he starts to speculate on when that appearing might be. And that's the danger some people get into. They start to speculate. See, the timing is entirely up to God to bring about. We're going to see that when we get to Second uh, Timothy. Let's, let's skip ahead. I'll steal my own thunder. Let's go to Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. And Paul talks, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. That's how I know I'm going to get that one, because I'm looking forward to and I love his appearing too. Any time would work fine for me. If I don't finish this, that's fine. See, Paul had the proper mentality. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, he was just about to be executed. I believe it happened within hours of him writing that. So Paul had the proper mentality. On the very eve of his own execution, he writes, I'm looking forward to that reward. There's a crown of righteousness coming to me because I am looking forward to the appearing of my Lord Jesus. Paul had that proper mentality right up to the very end. See, Timothy is to be encouraged and to look forward to the return of Christ but not to be so focused on it that he neglects his duty here on earth. Same thing goes for you and I. Yes, I am looking forward to that day, and I hope it comes soon. Because every day that passes, I'm less and less enamored with this world. I don't know if anybody else is, but that's the way I am. But I can't let that distract me from the importance of lifting up the name of my God before the heathen here and to show them the glorious gospel of Christ. I can't lose focus on that. I also find it interesting, oops, let me go back to our passage. Uh, I find it interesting that Paul ties the sure but yet unknown timing of Christ's return with the praise of God. Did you notice that? And God, who is in control of it all, we already said that it's, it's, uh, 
in his power, according to Acts 1, verse 7. Now we see the same sort of thing. Let's read a passage from Romans 11. Let's go over to Romans 11, uh, verses 34 and 36. Just so we can get this whole concept here. Romans 11, 34 down to 36. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. You see, I may not be able to fully understand all that there is to know about God. But that very fact makes him all the more glorious, doesn't it? The fact that if I could comprehend God, then he's not that impressive, is he? He's not that impressive. But the fact that I can't possibly comprehend everything about him makes him all the more glorious. Now, I can learn four, four things from that fact. I could probably learn more, but I'm only sharp enough to pick up four of them here. First of all, human beings cannot understand everything. Now, that flies in the face of the uh, humanist movement that we certainly have going on around us. Human beings cannot understand everything. Second thing, God is not obliged to explain everything. Thirdly, I need to simply believe and to cling to those things which he has chosen to reveal. I, only need, I don't need to be looking for other things he hasn't revealed. I don't need to look for secret mysteries. I need to look at what he has chosen to reveal. And fourthly, God deserves praise both for the things that he does explain and for the things that he chooses not to explain. That's four. I think that's four. Now that's enough for us to be inspired by, I think. Now, if you and I can grab hold of those four truths, it's going to go a long way to making us more content in our ministry. Remember, contentment is the theme of this chapter that we've been talking about. Are we going to be content in our ministry? We ought to be content with understanding that I can't know everything, that God doesn't need to explain everything, that I can be content with what God has chosen to reveal, and that God deserves praise both for the things He does reveal and the things He doesn't reveal. Now, by the time we get to the end of verse 16 today, Paul's going to reach a climax in his praise to God. He's building up to it. He's just building up right now. Now, while he's getting there, Paul makes three more statements about the majesty of our God. I don't know if you caught them all. First is, he says, that he is the blessed and only potentate. Now, that's quite a mouthful right there. He's the blessed and only potentate. Now, we already saw God call blessed, uh, call, Paul call God blessed in chapter 1 and verse 11. Let's look at that, because it's kind of unique. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now, the word blessed there is makairos, which is the same word Jesus used in the Beatitudes. 
Brother Fisher just finished talking about it. That same word. But this, when we're talking about God being blessed here, it's kind of a reversal of the way we think of things, isn't it? And let me explain. When we look at the Beatitudes, different groups of people are blessed, presumably by God, for whatever the case may be. Blessed are the meek. Carry on. Blessed are the peacemakers. Carry on. They're blessed. The, a human entity is being blessed by God. But here, God is blessed. Isn't that interesting? I hope one of you guys can explain that to me, because I do not understand that at all. Well, frankly, I, I can't explain that to you. I find it interesting. God is blessed. By whom? I'm not exactly certain. I don't know. I can't explain that. But God is more than blessed. He's the only potentate. That word potentate is dynasties, by the way. Uh, you've, you've heard that term before, dynasty. To, to have established one's dynasty, one's empire, he is the only potentate. His empire, by the way, is this entire universe. And he's the only one. It says he's the only potentate. And that, that word only is going to be our focus here for a minute. Did you know that there is no no God like our God? That our God is singular in every way? There is none like Him in any way. And that, by the way, is what separates Judaism and Christianity from practically everybody else. Almost every other religion has a bunch of gods to do the stuff that my God does all by Himself. I don't need to have a god of war. I don't need to have a sun god. I don't need to have a moon god. I don't have to have a uh, fertility god. I don't have to have this god, that god, god of war, god of love. I don't need all that. I got one god who takes care of all of it. What a god. Thank you. Thank you. That was a good time for that. See, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, uh, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohinyo, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our Lord, He is one. He is one. Our God is a singular God. There is no God like Him. Throughout the Old Testament, we see all kinds of people writing, Who is like you, God? Who is like you? There's none. There is none, there has been none, and there can be no other. He is God. The next expression that Paul uses, okay, so he's the blessed and only potentate. I, I left off blessed because I can't explain that. The only potentate, I think I explained a little bit about that. And then it says, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, that's an interesting phrase right there. Now, in the Old Testament, King Nebuchadnezzar was called the King of Kings. And he was called that. Uh, uh, we, we also see him described in uh, Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 7, as the King of Kings. Um, 
Nebuchadnezzar allowed other subject kings to rule under him. He was the king. He had other kings under him. He was the king of kings. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's title was. He called himself the king of kings. And other people called him that as well. All the other kings had to bow to his authority. Even Daniel called Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. Uh, chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 37. Da even Daniel acknowledged, yep, Nebi, you are the king of kings. That, no question about it. You are the king of kings. But in the same verse, let's take a look at it. Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. I don't want to just say this. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom and power and strength and glory. So yes, Nebuchadnezzar, you are. You are a king of kings. That's it. That is true. But God Almighty gave you your power, Nebuchadnezzar. So there's a God who's above kings, isn't he? Later on in the same conversation, Nebuchadnezzar comes to realize the truth of that. Uh, let's skip down to verse 47. And the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Even Nebuchadnezzar realized God, our God, Yahweh, is a God of gods, and he's the Lord of kings. No matter how, how many kings bowed down before Nebuchadnezzar, and I don't know how many it was, it was quite a few. The Babylonian Empire was massive, and all those kings bowed down before him. But Nebuchadnezzar had to bow down before God. You see... Our God, there may be other gods that people look to. They're gods of war, they're gods of whatever it may be. But all those gods have to bow down before my God. Plenty of Old Testament passages call God the Lord of Lords also. That's, that's uh, throughout the Old Testament. I don't have time to look all those up. But then we move on to verse 16. It says, Who only hath immortality? Now that looks like something we already saw in chapter 1 and verse 17. Uh, let's back up and take a look at that. It'll remind us of something. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He talks about the King eternal, immortal. Who only hath immortality, says in verse 16. Death can't touch my God. Death can't touch my God. That word immortality is athanasia. Athanasia. It's a very rare word in the New Testament. The only other place that we see it, since it's only mentioned one other time, we ought to take a look at it and see what we're talking about. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 15.
uh, verses 53 and 54. You'll recognize the passage. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's our word. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, that's our word, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Did you know that no other philosophy and no other religion on earth has anyone who is truly immortal? Various gods, various prophets, various things like that claim to have been killed, but then resurrected. But our God can't even die. God alone exists above all human conditions, including death. You and I are going to die. And the fact that God exists above all other human conditions is exactly what allows him to be a savior from it. If he were in my human condition, he can't save me from my human condition, can he? He needs to be above. He needs to transcend that. Paul expands on this immortality aspect. He points out that dwelling in a light which no man can approach unto. I don't know if you noticed, but God's association with light is one of the hallmarks of the whole Bible. Right in the very beginning of the Bible, the first recorded day of history, the very first action that was recorded on the very first day of history was God created light. Let there be light. And there was light. And God said, that's enough for today. The light was the very first thing that God decided to record that he created. But did you consider that that's, it's not just God who's unapproachable? I mean, we, we think of God as being unapproachable, who can approach unto our God. But it's not even just our God that's unapproachable. You can't even approach his light. Did you see that? He dwells in a light which no man can approach unto. You can't even approach his light. Now, that's described somewhat in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go over to that. Uh, wrong direction. Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 18 to 21. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. He's talking about uh, when the nation of Israel was gathered around Mount Sinai and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they had heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned and thrust through with a dart. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Even Moses was afraid, entering into Sinai. You couldn't approach him. And if anything did dare to approach him, it was to be stoned or struck through, put to death. Now, Paul got a little taste of that light 
when he was walking on the road to Damascus. And I think that's what's in mind as he's talking about this here to Timothy. Back in Acts chapter 9 and verse 9, go ahead and read that yourself. Paul's on the road to Damascus. He's Christian hunting. He's on a mission. He's got a uh, writ from the uh, Jerusalem to go hunt Christians wherever he finds them. And he's on his way to Damascus to go hunt them down. And all of a sudden, in, the, in broad daylight, high noon, walking the road, he gets struck down by a light that he couldn't even approach to. And it blinded him. And he was blinded until God saw fit to send a guy to remove the scales from his eyes and allow him to see again. That's a light that cannot be approached unto. I think Paul saw a little glimmer of what that light looks like, and I think that's what was in his mind as he's talking about this. I don't think Paul ever forgot that. I mean, let me speculate for a second. I got a couple of minutes here. Paul talks about other things, and people have speculated, well, uh, maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh was that maybe he had weak vision, and he talks about, oh, see how big a writing I did with my own hands. Do you think Paul's vision was ever the same after he was struck blind in the middle of that road? Do you ever wonder why he might have had bad vision? Just a thought. I'm back to, back to our topic. Uh, we're talking about a light that can't be approached unto. The idea here is of a light so bright, so intense, that you can't even glance at it. But thank God we have a mediator. We have a mediator who can approach it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Do you see? We've got someone who can approach that light, and he can make that same light shine into our hearts. Through Christ, we have access to that which no man can approach to, the glory of God Almighty. Through Christ, we can do that. Paul goes on, he says, Whom no man hath seen, nor can see. And again, this just points to God's transcendence. God is beyond our sight. We can't even approach His light. And yet He's revealed in Jesus. He transcends all realms, don't you see? I don't claim to understand it all. If I could understand it all, it diminishes our God, doesn't it? It's more than I can ken, as they used to say in the old days. Finally, Paul says, To whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now we've looked at this word honor throughout this book. We've seen it translated various ways in the King James. It's translated respect. It's translated honor. It's translated glory. It's the Greek word time. I'm not going to teach it all over again. We're pretty near done now. But it refers to respect, all respect, all, the highest level of respect. Time. But power is kind of interesting. He's worthy of honor, time. He's worthy of power, which is kratos. Paul uses Kratos three other places. 
Uh, let's look at them. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. There you go. Come on in. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. He says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power, kratos, to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Go over to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power, kratos, of his might. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. Our God is a mighty and a powerful God. Colossians 1, verse 11 says, Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, Kratos, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. I'll break the sentence off there. I think we got the idea. See, it's used by other New Testament writers as well. But what I find interesting about this power is that it's everlasting. That's what I really want to point out here this morning. To whom be honor and power everlasting. This is everlasting power. Now in this uh, day and age, we're looking at all kinds of alternative power sources and things of that nature. And as we look at alternative power sources, we're struck by the not everlasting power. None of the power that we've ever developed is everlasting, is it? Power goes out all the time. There were hundreds of thousands of people in the Deep South who were out of power due to tornadoes and things this past week. Some of them still are. Our power, our human humanity's greatest power is but fleeting, isn't it? My God's power is everlasting. All other power sources break down over time. Everything deteriorates. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything is breaking down. God's power is apparently tied to His own immortality. And the result is it is inexhaustible. So let me wrap up. I'm going to say that honor is what you and I and all of creation owe to our God. Power is what He alone possesses. Which makes any other response other than honor foolish. Because my God has this eternal limitless power, I owe Him all honor I can give Him. And any other response is foolish. Paul recognized those things. Do you? Let me wrap up in a word of prayer. Lord, You are a mighty and a powerful God, and there is none like You. You are the God of gods, and You are the Lord of kings, as Nebuchadnezzar realized so long ago. And I confess there's no way I can possibly ever grasp all that there is to know about You. Help us to lift Your name up and to show Your majesty and Your greatness in a world that desperately needs some majesty and greatness. Guide us by your Holy Spirit.
It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.